Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kepler. And this is episode 21 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 23rd of June. And Leon, we are talking to Adrian Bowden this week. That's right. Adrian Bowden is the Executive Officer of the South East Melbourne Manufacturers Alliance. And he's going to be talking to us all about how the energy crisis is hurting manufacturers and it's focusing very much on renewables. Yeah, very much, yeah. And it's serious because a lot of them will go out of business quite quickly if they don't get the reasonable... And this is very, very significant with developments this week with the gas exports restrictions. Yeah, that's right. It and, may ease it off a bit. And the Finkel report. So this is worth listening to. And then after that, we have a fascinating dissertation from Sinclair Davidson. That's right. Talking all about the government's debt level, which is half a trillion smackers. Yeah, and rising. That's right. (laughs) So before we all pass out with shock, let's listen to Adrian Bowden. Australia has more renewable energy resources than most other countries. Boundless sunshine, vast windswept areas, a large share of the world's uranium and the huge waves of the Southern Ocean crashing on our shores. Yet, we have an energy crisis. Supplies are short and prices are soaring. There's a huge and often nasty parliamentary debate about it, but sadly that debate is not about energy at all, but about political power. Former Prime Minister Tony Abbott and his political backers favour investment in coal, yet worldwide coal is now an economic. Last week we talked to Tim Buckley, an expert on the world's energy industry. This week we deal with the other side of it, energy prices rising by 20% for homes and as much as 250% for industry. Adrian Bowden explains the urgency of the problem, something the politicians so far do not seem to see. Adrian, there is a fair amount of gloom about manufacturing in Australia, and yet here in South Dandenong, there's some very bright bits, but you've got some caveats. Tell us what it's like. Um, currently, I think the the media message that we see of manufacturing is dead and dying across Australia is is not exactly a panacea to the 357,000 manufacturing companies in Australia and a large and significant proportion in the southeast of, of Melbourne. Um, we currently have an expanding industry in, in Victoria and particularly in this area. Um, we represent 50% of Victorian manufacturing output and we represent probably not far off 10 to 12% of Australian manufacturing output. Our problem, biggest issue at the moment are power which is the increased cost in power but also finding people skilled people to fill the jobs we have at least five companies that i'm working with where we have 300 jobs that we cannot fill so growth is there to have growth you need the people who can so fill what's their job we, we educate some of them and they just go um no i think the the there is that if, if you've been told as a parent that manufacturing is dead, why would you encourage your children to go into um, an educational process that is beneficial for manufacturing? Um, I think most parents forget that manufacturing is not just working on a production line, but it's also the engineer, the accountant, the logistics guy, the you know all the relevant industries that linked into it. And a company has probably only about 
20% of 30% of his workforce sometimes actually on the manufacturing. Where are the big skill gaps? I think big, big, it's it's really in the middle picture. It's less you can always find for the, the lower skill jobs, you've got people you can find. But in the middles where you're, you're transitioning people from manually operating a lathe or something like that to a CNC operated, a computer controlled machine, it's that transfer of a skill set to understanding the how to program or how to modify a machine tolerance via a computer controlled system. And I think that's probably where we're we're lacking. We have people looking for welders, which is a high tech industry in many ways, highly skilled uh, machine operators, machine programmers, um, very much the middle level of, uh, of skill sets that we require. But design seems to be pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of very smart stuff produced here, yeah. but that's not enough. You've got to build it, don't you? That's the biggest issue. I mean, we have probably, uh, having worked across the world in, in engineering groups, we have no lack of skill in engineering. We have some great guys um, designing some great products. Our issue is producing them competitively and finding the people to produce them competitively. So it, it is that skill set of um, of uh, from apprenticeships right the way through to um, mechanical engineers who may not have any experience with a mechanical product. So where does the cost come? Because wages across the board would be about the same as Germany or, or, or lower? I, I think we're probably, depending on the industry, we're, we're either there or thereabouts in terms of wages. Um, I don't think that's the issue. Some of the constraints about working practices are definitely part of the issue. The flexibility of the workforces has been negotiated through many, many years in most of Europe so that you do have a flexible workforce to to plan your production processes. Um, And I think that's something where we are behind Europe and to a degree America. Uh, But the cost, the inherent cost that we currently have is um, cost uh, cost of leasing a building, for instance. We are quite expensive. The cost of energy is significant in the production cost of our product. Um, So for a general manufacturing company, labor is probably only between 20 and 30% of its cost. It's interesting you bring up energy because all the research I'm reading, uh, say from the Australian industry group, says that uh, manufacturing is doing really well, really well, but the issue is power. Mm -hmm. And they're have huge cost increases and many could go to the wall. I mean, what's your view about that? Uh, we are, I mean, at SEMA, we're extremely passionate about this at the moment because we have a, a negotiated group purchasing deal for our members and uh, we have, our purchasing deal finishes at the end of June, so in the next couple of weeks, and we have been telling our members for the last three months whether they're within our deal or out of our deal, that you must be prepared for significantly increased power bills. Significantly increased, most of them weren't expecting 250 to 300% increases, um, none of which is explainable in reality, and uh, but which goes straight to your bottom line. Um, many of our members uh, invest. They invest in productivity tools, in machines, in really good machines, and they're finding that what they're getting out of those machines is enough productivity to pay the increased power bill. Um, there is no justification for the level of increases we are seeing. Uh, we had a three-year deal at about six cents, five and a half, six cents, and we're now looking at a deal which is over eighteen months, probably at about uh, fourteen and a half to fifteen cents. But this being allowed to happen, and it's the same with electricity, with gas. You know, I think you're saying. 
saying that yeah. we sell gas to Japan, we could ship it back cheaper than we could buy. And we we have Japanese companies installed here. One of our companies has um, Nissan Castings, which is a hundred percent export of their product. They've um, recently <laughs> signed a new deal. They had to. They had to get into a deal, and that deal has moved to easily doubled their gas bill because they they have uh, furnaces and uh, castings. And um, in conversation and trying to justify that increase to their Japanese masters, they were told that the Japanese could sell them back the Australian gas cheaper than we were buying it locally, which seems an inherently magnificent disadvantage to your local economy um, because we have people who find that they can get bigger long-term contracts and more volume out of shipping product overseas. So this has got to stop. So how do you see it stopping? I mean, you're at the fulcrum of the biggest industrial bit of Australia and how do you think it's going to work out? Well, I think that the governments have to recognise that it's not just manufacturing but everything that follows on from that is going to increase, whether it be the cost of the product, whether it be the cost of the retail, to the uh, the individual, to the home. We have well over 100,000 homes that are on, on payment terms, specific payment terms negotiated with the power companies because they cannot pay their power bills. How We cannot continue to let that happen. That's a, that's a huge number of, of families where you, you, your majority of your money is going on a power bill, not just rent, but on power. Um, and everything flows on from, from the manufacturing side. Do prices go up? Do we get rid of people? Do what, what do we do? How do we compensate for that? So what's the prospect of uh, a number of manufacturers going out of business? We have quite a few, I would say out of the 38 sites that we have, we've had three sites that have said to us, this will now be their largest cost of their functioning, of functioning, and they're not sure how they can absorb it. Some of them are people who are transitioning from auto to other businesses. They were doing okay, but then you get hit with this. It's another issue that they have to face off to. And there's just so many issues that you can face off to before you have the straw that breaks the camel's back. The politicians understand this properly? Uh, my, my position on this is that there is... Uh, there are certainly politicians that understand the issue. I think that we need to have a completely bipartisan, completely neutral body that represents the interests of not just manufacturing but the individual. ACCC can help in that area, but that this has to be a representative decision on behalf of the Australian public, not to create political scores, score sheets, to mark points against your opposition. This is too critical for um, for politicians to take a um, a partisan approach simply on on party politics. So there's got to be a time limit in this. I mean, how, are we close to the end of the fuse? Uh, I think we are. We, we're looking. We we have recommended to our members that our new deal will only be for eighteen months because we are hoping that through government intervention and themselves to a level which is sustainable. Uh, will they come back down to five or six cents? Don't know, but certainly 15 cents isn't sustainable. Not out of contract yet. We know their contracts, so they're looking at 19, 20, 21 cents a kilowatt of energy uh, per hour. And that's that's a phenomenal amount of cost. Um, as I said, we've got one company who will be looking at a half a million dollars extra energy cost over the next 18 months. And half a million dollars energy, when you translate it to jobs, is a lot of jobs. Yeah. 15, 15, 20 people. And you, you can't set up a pedal wireless, can you? No. And I, and I think this is where strategies on solar energy, on the number of roofs that we have, and we're looking out of our building where you have roofs which could easily accommodate solar panels and at the very reasonable cost. Um, we should be encouraging, promoting and directing energy at every possible source, not just one. 
but promoting the fact that it's a it's a benefit to the whole country. Well, given that the automotive industry was subsidised, do you think there's a chance that the government would say, OK, put in the solar things and we'll cover the cost? Co- cover the cost or, or facilitate the investment. It's as much of a productivity investment given the current energy costs as anything else. So if you're going to help somebody invest in a machine that's more productive, why wouldn't you help them invest in, in a solution which gives them a re- significant reduction in their production costs, which is power? And this must apply also to agribusinesses because they use fuel. Yep, every business and and much of it, if you think of pumping and pumping stations and the amount of energy that's required in in those areas, um, everybody will benefit. There's not just one area because if you bring down, if you have solar and you have um, uh, other energies available, and and we mentioned earlier on that, you know, Germany, which is a massive user of power, managed to get to 85% renewable energy usage um, in one day, uh, we must be able to do something similar uh, and it will impact for everybody. So you'll have more, you won't have to build new new stations, new power stations, polluting power stations. You can build more soda, solar panel or gas facilities. And, and of course, potentially we have so much potential renewable power here with sun, wind. wind yeah, yep, absolutely. Geothermal, and, you know. And, and I think there's in, the, the Victorian government or the, the Melbourne investment community has uh, a number of projects where they're encouraging tenants and landlords to promote the, the installation of of um, stations, uh, solar stations on top of roofs, because obviously if you're a tenant, you don't want to spend that money if you're not going to get it back at the end. And if you're an owner, you don't want to spend the money because you're not getting the benefit from it. So there's a number of uh, areas where that's being encouraged, but this needs to be a national policy. It needs to be a policy which the states buy into, that COAG works towards, and that we come up with a bipartisan approach to resolving the issue. Adrian, thank you very much. Pleasure. Very interesting and pretty tough than those guys worrying. Look, the only way uh, this can actually work is if we get bipartisan support. And at the moment, it doesn't look like we're going to get it. No, and this is a problem. We should actually look at what's happening in places like New Zealand. They're just rolling along. They see a problem, they get together and they fix it. And the other side of things, let's listen to Sinclair. Sinclair Davidson, the Australian government debt, topped $500 billion last week. Half a trillion dollars. What's your view about this? Well, it's it's quite astonishing, actually. If you think where we've come in reasonably short period of time, where in the early noughties, uh, 2001, 2002, I think it was, the then Howard government was talking about completely shutting down the government debt market because their view was they didn't need debt. It, it was unnecessary um, to a situation now where for every man, woman and child in Australia, there's about... $21,000 worth of individual debt, effectively. That, that's got to get, get paid back. Um, I think what, what people forget is that debt has to be paid out of future taxation. Um, that's where the money comes from. So debt is just deferred taxation. So uh, when you think about our current tax bill, we've got to take what we pay currently and add to that um, half a trillion dollars, which we've got to get paid back. That's quite extraordinary. Now, how did we get to this situation? Laziness, bad policy, bad choices, uh, and let me just say complacency actually is part of it as well. So um, when the global financial crisis hit in the end of 2008, then Rudd governments put in their first stimulus package, uh, which was from memory $10 billion or so, which at that point was half the the surplus. And a few months later, they seemed to panic again and then ended up spending about $100 billion all up on various things. So there was the package of $42 billion and then 
all sorts of other little things that they added in. And the argument was that the government needed to temporarily go into debt in order to uh, um, stimulate the economy. Now, I happen to think it was a bad idea at the time, but whatever it was, that's what happened. And to their credit, the then Labour government put in a debt ceiling. So they said every time debt goes above a certain level, we will come back to the parliament and make a case to increase the, the, the amount that we can borrow. And that was seen to be a, a, a protection, almost like a fiscal constitution. We're going to do the right thing here. One of the first things that the the uh, Abbott government did when coming to office was to abolish the debt ceiling. So the government did not need to go back to Parliament and make a case for increasing the amount of debt that the Commonwealth could borrow. The Treasurer could simply just announce how much they were going to increase the, the, the borrowing. Well, that was a big mistake. The other mistake was, of course, was um, not having fiscal discipline to return to surplus as quickly as possible after the global financial crisis. That combined, so the lack of fiscal discipline combined with getting rid of the debt ceiling has created a situation now where complacency came into the community and governments are just borrowing. Well, well, the debt, the Rudd government went into it, uh, and but debt was about two hundred and thirty something when when uh, the coalition came to office yes, in two thousand thirteen. So they've more than doubled it. Oh, the coalition have more than doubled it. The former Labor government increased it now. Off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember if it was fourfold or eightfold. It was some obscene amount of money. So the coalition have been increasing the debt at a slower rate than before, but nonetheless, it has doubled. And of course, double a big number is another very big number. So it has certainly doubled. Um, and I, I think certainly, uh, Mr. Hockey. And, and Mr. Morrison have a lot of explaining to do. And their explaining must go beyond, oh, the Senate won't allow us to pass our, our legislation because I really think between the two of them, they have not done enough to, to emphasize the problem, to emphasize the dangers. And people have just suddenly woken up saying, oh my God, we've got half a trillion dollars worth of public debt. That needs to be get, get paid back. Um, if you listen to Mr. Morrison, when he, when he talks about it, he kind of waves it away by saying, well, the budget is still in deficit. And while the budget remains in deficit, of course, we've got to keep borrowing, which, which strictly speaking, of course, is totally true. But the thing is, they've taken a very lackadaisical approach to bring the, the budget back into surplus, more or less making the argument we're going to grow back into surplus, which means that we're going to grow out of debt, which I, I think is not a very good way of doing things. Now, of course, the uh, as you say, that they say they're going to grow their way out of deficit. And the Treasury forecast is that we're going to hit 3% GDP, and our last figures for GDP were pretty underwhelming. Shocking. One third of 1% <laughs> yes. growth yes. and the quarter, and that is pretty abysmal, and uh, there's no sign that that's going to pick up. No. And uh, so how can the budget actually get into surplus in 2020-21, according to their projections? Well, it... I, I just can't see that it, that it will do. Um, the figures which came out of the last budget or went into the last budgeting process uh, were, were discredited almost immediately when the uh, when the ABS brought out their, their growth figures. Now, the, the thing is you, you can't just hope that something will come along. You've actually got to make decisions about what's going to be done about bringing the, the, the budget back into surplus. I mean, I, I don't think Australians necessarily want to have a big surplus. I mean, there's no point in accumulating a surplus for the sake of it. But actually having enough of a surplus to demonstrate fiscal discipline is actually quite important. I mean, we are not a large country. We are far away from our trading partners. 
where we, we our currency floats on the international markets, we can't afford to have policy complacency that we've been observing now for, what, almost 10 years. So what should the government be doing to bring down this uh, debt? I, I would be looking, uh, um, as always, uh, um, for, for a start, uh, cutting spending. Um, that's the, the primary thing. And by cutting spending, I don't mean reducing so-called tax expenditures. I mean, actually writing checks is a problem. Uh, we saw over the weekend news reports coming out that foreigners, for example, are on welfare. Well, we should be looking a long, hard look at that. Why are foreigners on welfare? All along, I would have said I would have taken a long, hard look at the NBN. Um, we're hearing horrible stories about uh, how terrible it is. And irrespective of whether we got the full-blown or the half-blown or the who's NBN we've got, we've spent a lot of money on something people don't necessarily want. I would have delayed the national disability insurance. I would be looking very long and hard. Do we really need to be spending more money on primary and secondary education when we don't really have that money at the moment and and performance scores have been declining over a period of time when we've actually been pumping more money into the system. So I, I would start off by taking, saying to our friends in Canberra, spending more money is not a solution to poor policy outcome. We actually need to look long and hard at the kind of policies we want, what should we be doing, what shouldn't we be doing. Um, the other thing is um, I would then start looking at regulation. So we, we've actually had massive increases in regulation and red tape and what have you over the last few years. And at the same time, we've had a massive decline decline in business uh, investment. You can't blame all of that on the end of the mining boom. You've actually got to take some responsibility and say, why is it that people don't want to invest their money in Australia? Are we doing something wrong? We can't just wave your hands and say, oh, there's a capital strike on. Well, why is there a capital strike on? Start asking tough questions. Are we doing the wrong thing? How are we managing our economy? Are we spending money in the right areas? Actually have a full-blown soul search as to what it is that government is doing and should be doing. And that is how you get the money back under control. Because in, in many many respects, of course, the, the budget deficit is a symptom of, of problems, not necessarily a cause of problems, of course, but it feeds back in again. But that, that would require some really hard questions. Yes, but also, of course, taking the community with you. Having So when the coalition came to, to office in 2013, they jumped up and down about debt and deficit. We heard about it every single day. And they, and they pledged to pay off the and, debt. And they said they were going to pay off the debt. At one stage, Mr. Hockey promised to bring the, the budget back into surplus in one year, which perhaps was a bit ambitious. But nonetheless, we can say that was an aspirational goal. Um, now, we don't even seem to have that aspirational goal anymore. It's a, well, you know, we'll keep muddling along and hopefully the economy will grow us back into surplus. Well, we don't need to be paying Mr. Morrison, what, three, four $400,000 a year to, to have that as, as the treasurer's attitude deficit. We, you know, anybody can do that. We've got to say, well, what do we need him for if that's his plan? Um, so to be quite honest, I, I think our, our friends in Canberra need to actually get serious and seem to be serious and actually start talking to the population again about what's going on in the economy because I think the population are getting angry and frustrated and annoyed too. They, they need to be taken seriously. And if it isn't attended to, the, the government debt will blow out by 2020. It'll be yes. it'll be around about $700 billion. Uh, Or if not bigger, that's just depending upon how things go at the moment. And we've got to say, you know, by being complacent, what sort of future are we choosing for ourselves? We're actually choosing a less prosperous, less wealthy, less happy, um, less flourishing future than uh, what we all have aspirations for right now. So we're going to have to put up with higher levels of taxes, lower quality spending, mm. a lower quality of life. Um, and is this what people really want or do they want something better? Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. 
So it's a bit worrying, isn't it, Leon? Oh, look, uh, this debt level is seriously bad, and unless it's attended to, it's going to get a lot worse. Well, it amounts to $100,000 for every family of four in the country. Yeah. And that's a bit daunting, given that most of them have got pretty big debts of them of their own. And Sinclair worked out how much it is per individual, and it's quite striking, so very scary. <laughs> Think I better go on holiday. So now, the news. Well, Gary, with the Brexit negotiations beginning this week, five British business lobby groups, including the British Chambers of Commerce, the CBI, Institute of Directors, have asked British Prime Minister Theresa May to give the UK economy its top priority in negotiating Brexit. They're also seeking a transitional deal that preserves access to a single market. And their joint statement says the business community accepts the decision of voters last June that the UK will leave the European Union. We have come together to urge the government to put the economy first as it prepares to start formal negotiations on the UK's departure from the EU. This is a deal that when finally agreed will matter fundamentally for the UK economy, for UK companies and for citizens of the UK. A deal that supports growth will allow companies to hire more people, raise living standards and improve lives across the country. Now, they're also seeking a Brexit deal that ensures a tariff-free trade of goods between the UK and the EU and minimal customs formality at the land, sea and air borders between the two. And they're also asking for a flexible system for the movement of labour and skills. Now, this statement is significant, Gary, because it's putting pressure on the British government towards a softer Brexit. And that has a whole lot of implications for Theresa May's stay in office. I think it's looking increasingly likely that uh, the party will say, you know, thanks, Theresa, but uh, don't come Monday. Well, I'll say this about British Conservatives. They've always been very big on regicide. Yeah. <laughs> Goes back centuries. That's right. Now, uh, US President Donald Trump has copped a fail grading from half of chief executives and other American leaders in a targeted poll, with many worried his chaotic style is jeopardising promised corporate tax cuts and deregulation business. The Yale's University CEO Summit of Executives, Government Officials and Leading Academics found that 50% of the 125 respondents marked President Trump's opening 130 days in office as an F grading, a fail. Some 21% of those surveyed gave the real estate mogul turned president a D, 10% a B and only 1% gave him an A. And now the anonymous poll was conducted at this month's leadership summit where participants included the CEOs of IBM, asset management firm Blackstand Group, Bank Wells Fargo, drunk manufacturers Merck and Valant Pharmaceuticals, department store JC Penney and fast food chain Panera. Pretty right, really. I'm surprised it wasn't lower. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, 50% give, gave him a fail. That's not good. That's not good at all. He's not looking quite so shiny, is he? No. Now, to Australia and in the minutes of its last board meeting released this week, the Reserve Bank of Australia flagged a slowing down of economic growth in the first quarter with weakening consumption. The minutes of its board's meeting showed the RBA was keeping Keeping an eye on the housing market, it says weak growth in retail sales in the March quarter pointed to a slowing in consumption growth following strong growth in December quarter. Low household income growth and concerns about increased indebtedness had continued to impose downside risks to the outlook for consumption growth. At the same time, the RBA continues to forecast growth moving a little above 3% over the next couple of years as wages and prices pick up. And the minutes also indicated it was cautious about the housing market and was looking at how cooperation with regulators and monetary policy could maintain financial stability. 
But it's obviously we're on the edge of dangerous given what the uh, Moody's and S&P have done. That's quite a worry. Now, Australian consumer confidence weakened last week, falling 0.4% to 112.4% according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. Now, the overall trend is looking more positive with four-week average at its highest point in nine weeks. But the data shows a lot of variation in the sub-indices. Households' expectations of current economic conditions rose 0.6% last week after sharp 5.2% decline the previous week. Household confidence in future economic conditions was also up, rising 2.8% and offsetting the 2.6% fall the previous week. Households' views around current financial conditions dropped a sharp 8.1% and that in effect unwound most of a 9.4% jump in confidence the previous week. So we're just trogging along down the bottom of the... That's right. Very important story this week was the government has announced measures to try and lower energy prices by restricting gas exports. The gas export restrictions are aimed at forcing exporters to divert production into the domestic market, preventing local prices soaring above amounts paid for Australian gas in Asia. The Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull flagged enacting constitutional powers to force gas exporters to redirect supply to the domestic market. Now, the new regulations to restrict exports will start from January the 1st, 2018. Mr Turnbull also said the government was open to the idea of using clean coal technology to replace existing generators. The package also includes abolishing the limited merits review appeals mechanism, which has forced up power prices by an estimated $6.5 billion. The limited merits review system allows decisions of the Australian Energy Regulator to, to be reviewed by the Australian Competition Tribunal, and this has seen 52 appeals by power companies and courts ruling against consumers 31 times. The package also provides an extra $67.4 million for the Australian energy regulator to stop energy companies gaming the system and to overturn rulings in court. The Australian energy market operator will conduct a review to look at new dispatchable baseload power. Now, what happened, Gary, was that a meeting of the Coalition Party Room adopted 49 of the 50 recommendations by Chief Scientist Alan Finkel. The most contentious one, a clean energy target, was not adopted following a revolt in the party room last week. However, Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg said it was still under consideration and will continue to be analysed in consultation with state Now, the Minerals Council of Australia has been lobbying coalition MPs to have reverse auctions replacing dispatchable baseload power capacity that is lost as old coal-fired generators close, and that includes the loss of about 3,600 megawatts of baseload coal-fired power from the Hazelwood plant in Victoria and the scheduled 2022 closure of the Liddell plant in New South Wales. Now, with the reverse auction system, gas companies can put forward plans to fill the gap left by the closure of ageing coal generators, allowing the government to choose between clean coal gas or other options, meeting a benchmark of reliability. And Mr Turnbull, however, stressed that this did not mean the coalition was closing the door on a longer-term clean energy target. Yeah, but a lot of people are. AGL announced straight after the Prime Minister's announcement on, quote, clean, unquote, coal, said they weren't interested in coal. Well, that's right. AGL Energy said that the economics of coal don't add up. What they said is that the costs of coal have remained static over the last 20 years. But meanwhile, the cost of solar has gone down 80%. Yeah. The cost of wind has gone down 20%. Yeah, and, and will continue to drop because once it's established, it's apart from maintenance, there's no cost. That's right. You're not not buying coal. And AGL is the largest operator of 
coal-fired generators in Australia. Yeah, and it wants out. Well, Adani's the same way. It's got the biggest coal-fired station in the world. It's been losing money for a decade. That's right. That's right. Now, other important piece of news is that the Reserve Bank of Australia Governor, Governor Philip Lowe has warned that the political deadlock on reform would leave Australia's economy in low growth. Now, in a short speech at the Australian National University's Crawford Australian Leadership Forum, that was on Monday, Dr Lowe said average growth in per capita incomes over the next quarter of a century will be lower than over the past 25 years. And he said that while Australia's record run of 26 years without a technical recession was, in his words, a significant achievement, it was important to remember that strong population growth had, in his word, flattered the headline growth figures. He said Australia was capable of stronger growth than what it had seen over the past few years, but much of this depended on its ability to tackle reforms. And his words are really important. He said, and I'm quoting him here, it is important that we have a sharp focus on the reforms that can make a real difference to our living standards. If we don't do this, we will fall behind. The positive news is there's no shortage of good ideas here. The not so positive news is that there's shortage of good ideas that can successfully navigate the political process. And he said the main drivers of growth were in the service industries while natural resources remain the key export earner. And what in fact he's saying to the parliament is get real, stop arguing about politics and face the issues. That's right. Now, to the corporate scene and while Australian retailers are nervous about Amazon's arrival in Australia, Amazon's plans to buy Whole Foods for $13.7 billion and disrupt supermarkets has hit Australian retail stocks. Now, Woolworths, West Farmers, uh, which is the owners of Coles, Metcash, which runs IGO Supermarkets, JB Hi-Fi, Meyer and Harvey Norman, all fell this week, as had the Australian consumer stable sector and this mirrored the impact in the United States when the announcement of Amazon's move on Whole Foods sent shares in US listed retailers Kroger, Target, Supervalue, Costco and Walmart plunging. However, analysts are saying it might be an overreaction given that Amazon has yet to even roll out its Australian retail offering. A lot of scare so far and but let's wait and see what they do. Absolutely. And uh, they'll be ready for them. I think a lot of them will be. Mobs like Catch of the Day and so forth, they're already in Amazon territory. As would be JB Hi-Fi. Indeed. Now, ratings agency Moody's has cut the long-term ratings of Australian banks, including the four biggest in the country, citing concerns about house prices, rising household indebtedness and low wages growth. Moody's downgraded the long-term ratings of Australia's four major banks, ANZ, CBA, NAB and Westpac, to AA3, that's down from AA2. It said the ratings outlook for all four lenders is staple. Now, it's important to remember that ratings agency S&P Global Ratings last month lowered the ratings of 23 Australian financial institutions, citing the risk of a sharp down downturn in property prices. So the ratings agencies have put Australia's banks on notice. Indeed. And finally, the Australian Competition Tribunal has approved Tabcor's $11 billion merger bid with TATS in a written summary of his ruling. Australian Competition Tribunal President John Middleton said he was, quote, satisfied that the proposed merger is likely to result in substantial public benefits. And he said in his word, the public detriments identified by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission and the interveners unlikely to either arise or are not of significance. Now, the ACCC had published its concerns about the proposed deal, but had made no ruling. And its preliminary view was that the proposed merger was likely to substantially lessen competition in the supply of monitoring and other services to pokies venues in Queensland. Now, what happened was the TAPCOR bypassed the ACCC and took it to the Federal Court's Australian Competition Tribunal. And this merger has been approved on the condition that TAPCOR divests its Queensland pokies monitoring business, Odyssey Gaming Services, and Tasmania-based Federal Group is set 
set to acquire Odyssey once the merger is in place. Well, maybe they're cleaning it up a bit. Yes, and uh, that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week, talking to Shay Vaughan, the um, co-founder and CEO of WBTVN, which is the Women's Broadcast Television Network in America. It's the first OTT online TV network with original content created by women for women, giving any host access to its growing millions of online viewers from next door to across the globe. Yeah, it looks like she's got big growth in that area. So it'll be fascinating talking to her. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizBiz or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.